to know that that double bell ringing session there was because everybody was so delightedly interested in chatting today, we knew it would take you a couple of minutes to get in here, so we called you a couple of minutes early. But the time has arrived now to begin our second class, and uh, as usually happens, you find that you're lagging a little bit behind in the material you want to cover about this part of the week. This was not an accident. It was not poor management. It's simply because there was some groundwork that we felt should be covered with considerable care, and I hope that it has left you with a feeling of understanding of what it is we're trying to do here in discussing the doctrinal history of the Christadelphians. Yesterday we read portions, the major portion of the fifth chapter of Romans, and we commented on the fact that some difficulties would arise amongst Christadelphians after the passing and falling asleep of Dr. Thomas. Dr. Thomas fell asleep on the 5th of March in 1871. And in the ensuing year or two, there arose some challenges to the beliefs which he had promulgated. While he was alive, it was not unusual for someone who had doubts about the doctor's teachings to write him a letter. And in his paper, The Herald of the Kingdom, his magazine, The Herald of the Kingdom, he would usually answer these queries and explain in his usual lucid style uh, his views upon the matter. And generally, these were quite acceptable because, as you already know, he was a very convincing writer and his method was very logical. After he fell asleep, however, there was no such court of last appeal. Not that he would have considered himself the court of last appeal. He felt the scripture was that. There were, however, those who arose who showed promise of being brethren of ability amongst the Christadelphians. There was a particular brother whom we mentioned yesterday who more or less inherited the mantle of Dr. Thomas, much as Elisha inherited the mantle of Elijah. And this was Brother Robert Roberts. It was at the doctor's suggestion that he began a magazine called The Ambassador of the Coming Age. And this was published for a number of years in England, in Birmingham. Uh, Dr. Thomas, in the meantime, feeling the rigors of age coming on, uh, as a result of his very hard life in presentation and defense of the truth, slowly began to draw to the point that he finally ceased publishing the Herald of the Kingdom, finding it too much of a burden, desiring to use his remaining energies and personally expounding the truth in various parts of the world. In America, he had come to the conclusion that things were so mixed up that he didn't like the atmosphere as much as he thought he would like it. And thus he was very much drawn to the idea of spending the remainder of his days in Britain. In fact, after one visit to Britain, he made the decision that since the British had uh, so wholeheartedly accepted the truth and the Americans had not, that he believed that he would go back to New York, settle up his affairs, and return to Britain to live the remainder of his days. This was never to be. For when he returned to Brooklyn, he completed some or to the uh, New York area, he completed some business arrangements, and in the course of time, he took ill and died. There's a very touching account written by his daughter of his last week of illness in which he suffered very greatly, but finally expired and uh, lapsed into the sleep of death from which he expected to be wakened to the resurrection. There were others, though, beside Dr. Thomas, but beside Brother Roberts, uh, who showed promise of being leaders in the Brotherhood at this time. By the time of his death, again at the suggestion of Dr. Thomas, the name of the ambassador had been changed to the Christadelphian, and so it remains to this day. Another brother founded a publication, a uh, brother by the name of J.J. Andrew. Uh, his publication was called The Sanctuary Keeper. It did not attain the popularity throughout the Brotherhood that the Christadelphian had, uh, nevertheless, many respected it, and he was indeed a very able reasoner and defender of the truth. It's interesting to notice that 
very early after the demise of Dr. Thomas, Brother Andrew came out with a little booklet in which he endeavored to set forth in very simple style the, the principles which Dr. Thomas had taught. And there's pretty much, it's pretty well agreed that he did not deviate from the teachings of Dr. Thomas, although obviously he expressed these teachings in somewhat different fashion than the doctor had done. This little pamphlet was called Jesus Christ and Him Crucified. In more recent times, it has been republished by some who have a great respect for it under the title of The Real Christ. This is published by the Dawn Publishing Company, Corporation, and uh, it's the same pamphlet, however, that was published by J.J. Andrew. I'd like to read a section to you from that little pamphlet because I think... Uh, it's in booklet form now. I think you'll find uh, not only does it state very much as Dr. Thomas stated, but it states and sets forth anew at this period following 1871 and the demise of Dr. Thomas uh, certain principles on the atonement and centering around the fifth chapter of Romans and also certain other portions of the scripture. Uh, this is in page 89 of The Real Christ. From the time of the fall, no one had ever manifested perfect obedience. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God, in Romans 3:23, If man had been left to himself, it would have been impossible for him to escape the endless consequences of the death penalty. Therefore God interposed in the above way and produced one who manifested that perfect obedience which all others had failed to perform. From his youth, Jesus walked in the affectionate fear of his heavenly Father, as illustrated by the recorded saying at 12 years of age, quote from Luke's second chapter, Wist ye not that I must be about my Father's business? And as he grew in years, he increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. His mind was evidently susceptible even in early life and to an exceptional degree to spiritual truths. To use the language of the prophet Isaiah, he was of quick understanding in the fear of the Lord. In a very concise summary of the mission of Jesus Christ, the writer of the epistle to the Romans says, and this is from the eighth chapter of Romans, the third verse, God sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemned sin in the flesh. God did not send his son from heaven to earth, possessed of an incorruptible spiritual spirit nature, clothed in a body of clay, modeled in the image of men, but he formed him of the flesh of a sinful race, and thus he was in the likeness of sinful flesh, not a different kind of flesh from, which, from that of mankind generally, but precisely the same. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. Uh, I think it's important to remember that. And his understanding of the 8th chapter of Romans, which is complementary to the one we've been reading the last part of the last class period. From what Brother Andrew states here, you will see that he believes something very clearly and very forcefully. And in the last part of this booklet is a little statement of his beliefs, which summarizes the substance of what he says. It's called, in, it's an appendix, and it's called First Principles of Scriptural Truth. And it's listed in a series of propositions. If you have enough access to this, you'll find that it looks very similar to our statement of faith. Must bear in mind there had been no statement of faith up till this time. Dr. Thomas had found it convenient to issue what he called a synopsis of beliefs of the Christadelphians. But it had not been generally accepted. It was not a creed. It was not a statement of faith. It was a convenient summary of beliefs. There had been none. This was perhaps the nearest thing to it. Number three in this says that man is mortal, is a mortal creature made of the dust of the ground, and in consequence of Adam's sin, under the sentence of death, and that when death occurs, he ceases to exist, and while in the death state is devoid of all thought, consciousness, and life. I want you to remember that, but now I'd like you to carry two thoughts in your mind because we have some things now that are going to happen very thick and very fast, and certain, certain 
omens for the future are beginning to shape themselves. There is another statement he makes in here, summarizing uh, first principles of scriptural truth, and to understand it and to realize that he was carrying out some of the beliefs of Dr. Thomas, I'd like to remind you that one of the first things I read you from the life and work of Dr. Thomas was the 34 questions which he propounded to the Campbellite Brotherhood at the time he was a member of it. And number 13 was, and I'm going to repeat it, are not the great recompense of reward and punishment <clears throat> consequent on the rejection of God's proclamation or offer of immortality on the terms of the gospel? And I did not read a couple more of them, but I'd like to do so now. Number 14, <clears throat> if this be so, and if God has never made the offer of, had never, and God have never made the offer of life and incorruptibility to pagans, say the Chinese, will they be raised again from the dead to suffer punishment and to be involved in a common and fierce catastrophe with those who have heard it and yet refuse to obey it? Note that principle. He has already fixed in his mind that there's a difference between the pagans, say the Chinese, who never heard the gospel, and those who have heard it and yet have refused to obey the gospel. You see, this idea came into his mind long before he ceased to be a Campbellite. And in Elpis Israel, he teaches that these individuals will indeed, who hear the gospel and refuse to obey it, be summoned before the judgment seat of Christ to be punished for their rejection of the gospel. And we find Brother Andrew in Proposition 5 making this statement that resurrection affects those only who are responsible to God by a knowledge of his revealed will. That all these, whether just or unjust, faithful or unfaithful, will be raised from the dead at the second appearing of Jesus Christ and will, with the living, appear in corruptible nature before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account of themselves and to receive in the body according to what they have done, whether good or bad. Please note that the immortal emergence theory is thoroughly taken care of here. He, he echoes the words of Dr. Thomas that these people, whether just or unjust, will appear before the judgment seat of Christ in corruptible nature, the same general type of nature, but not necessarily under the condemnation that he mentioned in the third uh, item, but nevertheless uh, susceptible to either death or life. And when the tribunal of Christ pronounces them uh, worthy of immortality, they would be clothed upon with immortality, as we mentioned in the words of Dr. Thomas yesterday. Or if they are found unworthy of life eternal, they will be consigned to the second death. And he predicates the, the presence of those who are to appear there upon one thing and one thing only. Now, this is not Dr. Thomas talking, but this summarizes Dr. Thomas's teachings. This is J.J. Andrew talking that it will, the resurrection will affect those who are responsible to God by a knowledge of his revealed will. I call this to your attention because I want you to remember it, just as I asked you to remember that Dr. Thomas realized or became disposed toward this same idea even before other principles of the truth were ever discovered by him. All right, now back to the question of what we shall call the principles of the nature of man and sacrifice of Christ. I'd like to repeat number three, that man is a mortal creature made of the dust of the ground and in consequence of Adam's sin under the sentence of death, and that when death occurs he ceases to exist, and while in the death state is devoid of all thought, consciousness, and life. About this time another very able person uh, comes upon the scene, <clears throat> who, however, I'm sorry to say, did not last very long. He had been a follower of Dr. Thomas, had heard him directly, had reveled in the disclosures of truth that Dr. Thomas had been able to make, but Dr. Thomas had scarcely uh, breathed his last, and Brother Andrew had scarcely brought out his restatement of the principles which Dr. Thomas had upheld, then this gentleman proceeds to challenge some of these views. He does so in a series of lectures in Birmingham. These lectures were uh, at the were given as an invitation 
were given and an invitation was extended to the members of the Birmingham Ecclesia, and they attended. And, of course, uh, one of the able brethren of that ecclesia and editor of the Christadelphian magazine was Brother Robert Roberts. Brother Robert Roberts took notes on the lectures which were given, and in turn, the following week, gave one of him of his own to answer the charges that Dr. Thomas had uh, incorrectly interpreted the scripture on a certain point involving the nature of man and the sacrifice of Christ. Now, this sets the history stage so that you know what's going on. <clears throat> now, I'd like to point out what the conflict was. The man in question was a man by the name of Edward Turney. He wrote a pamphlet based on the lecture he gave in Birmingham entitled The Sacrifice of Christ. <clears throat> there is a great deal that could be read in it. I do not wish to do this, but I would like to read a portion of it to you. Uh, here is what Mr. Turney said in essence. I will begin my lecture, brethren, by asking you to read with me Romans 5. We did that yesterday. Having finished the chapter, the lecturer remarked, and now from here on are his words, the first point I wish to speak upon in that chapter is that mentioned by Paul in the sixth verse. If you have your fifth chapter of Romans handy, you will find it. And he's going to quote it here, so I won't read it from the Bible. For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. End of quotation. Now, brethren, we ought to know what the apostle would have us understand by that clause. Quote, when we were without strength. Unquote. As to the expression in due time, I think we're all probably agreed that it refers to the end or nearly the end of the 70 weeks. Spoken of by the prophet Daniel. But what can be signified by the phrase without strength? That is the question now for decision. My answer is with Paul thus, that we lost all our strength by Adamic transgression. In whom all sinned, as Paul says in Romans. By one man's disobedience, sin entered into the world, and death by sin, so death passed upon all men, in whom Adam all sinned. The Greek word here means in whom. To express it as Milton does in his third book of Paradise Lost at the 209th line, his crime makes guilty all his sons. And in his 11th book, line 317, Milton also says, In me all posterity stands cursed. That is our position. We are prospectively dead men. Now then, I shall take this position that if Christ came into the world in this position, he cannot help us. Why? Because we are without strength. And if Christ came into the world as we are, he too would be without strength to help us. Now this is the point of divergence from Dr. Thomas. There is also a point of divergence in that he follows the line of Milton's paradise lost in assuming that the transgression of Adam in Eden brought guilt upon all his descendants. Dr. Thomas was very careful to avoid that, and so did his followers. Going back to Mr. Turney, he says, it may be said and probably will be said that it was the Father who provided the help. That is perfectly scriptural. But I would have you observe that he did not provide that help apart from his son, but in his son. And you will see this in a pointed manner by referring to the uh, 89th Psalm, which reads thus, quote, Then thou speakest in vision to thy Holy One, and saidst, I have laid help on one that is mighty. I have exalted one chosen out of the people. We all agree, I think, that this notes, this refers to the Messiah. Now, to have brought Christ into the world under the Adamic curse would have been to, to deprive him of all help, instead of to have, instead of to have laid help upon him, our being brought into the world in that state deprived us of all help. And if he had been brought in, he would likewise have been utterly helpless, or as Paul says, without strength. The very fact that his death helps or saves us is proof that he did not come into the world like us. That is without strength. But there is something more. This help. I take to be presented to us in a twofold way. And I would speak of the first part of it as natural and the next as supernatural help. But the supernatural would have been of no value without the natural help. 
you will inquire what I mean by natural help. I mean this. Assuming for the moment that the second man, the last Adam, the Christ, came into the world as free as the first Adam and not under the condemnation of death caused by the first man's transgression, that is what I mean by natural help. There was a life as free as Adam's was when he sprang from the ground a living soul. Now that life was the price or ransom that had to be paid for those who had lost theirs by Adam's transgression. I can see help in the natural way here, and by supernatural help I mean this, that had the Almighty not raised Jesus from the dead, he would have been there right now. Supernatural help was necessary to bring him again to the surface, to bestow upon him eternal life, and to empower him to impart that life to those who shall be found worthy at the judgment seat of Christ. What that in brief is, now that in brief is what I mean by the two phases, natural and supernatural help, which Jesus received. We shall not read a great deal of this. I thought this would give you an idea sufficient to point out one thing, because that paragraph contains another name for this controversy. You remember I mentioned yesterday that this was a renunciationist controversy. That's what it was called by the most of the Christadelphians at the time, because they said he renounced the teachings we have held that man was under the sentence of death. He acknowledged that. But that Jesus, too, was born under the sentence of death. He renounced that. And this is what we mean. Instead, he says that Jesus was born into this world by the interposition of God in a condition very much as Adam was before he fell, with a free life to do with as he chose. He was not under the sentence of death. He could have lived on if he chose. But he chose to give that life voluntarily as a ransom to buy back those who were helpless under the sentence from the Garden of Eden. Now, you can see this is a highly technical controversy. And it was thrust upon the Brotherhood about the year 1873, about two years after the death of Dr. Thomas. The uh, brethren who followed the teachings of Dr. Thomas, most particularly Brother Roberts and Brother J.J. Andrew, uh, sprang to the defense of what they considered, first of all, to be the truth, and secondarily, the principles of Dr. Thomas, which they felt were the truth. And much literature passed around. The pages of the Christadelphian magazines of that period, if you happen to have access to them, you can read them, are quite filled with the evidences of conflict at this point. Sufficient to state, I think, at this point, that the lecture which Brother Roberts gave after uh, this lecture given by Mr. Turney was also reproduced in pamphlet form after it was given, and it's entitled The Slain Lamb. Uh, Mr. Turney used a diagram to show what he meant by his free life. Brother Roberts produced another diagram, which he felt was more correct than Mr. Turney's, and both of them are reproduced in this pamphlet. You can come up and look at them if you like afterwards, or you might have one at home that you can look at. This is a Turney idea, and this is the Brother Roberts idea. I won't explain them I'm uh, in detail because that would take more time than we have at our disposal. I would, however, like to read one comment which Brother Roberts makes in his pamphlet and which will give you a contrast to what you just heard in the uh, Edward Turney pamphlet. This is on page 10 of The Slain Lamb. By the way, some of these pamphlets are now in, not the Turney pamphlet, but this one is incorporated, I believe, in some of the bound volumes of the works of the period. Brother Roberts says, Adam was condemned, and we have the testimony of the Spirit that his condemnation hath passed upon all men. Now, what is that condemnation? Is it a condemnation against the nature or against the life in the nature? Which? It cannot be against be a condemnation against the life in the nature. That is what the immortal soulists say. And in this respect, the new theory makes an advance toward immortal soulism. The abstract life in all nature is the same. Men and animals have one breath. We might add that Mr. Turney attacks Dr. Thomas's views on that when he says all animals, whether men or animals, have the same life and the same breath. And uh, Brother Roberts is here reaffirming it. With God is the fountain of life. God is the life of all, and he giveth unto all life and breath and all things. And when death happens, the dust returns unto the dust, and the spirit or the life returns to God who gave it. 
It is not the life that is condemned, for it is not the life that is the sinner. It is the person, the individual, the nature that is condemned, because it was the person, Adam, that was the sinner. Condemnation in Adam means, therefore, that we are mortal in Adam, mortal in physical constitution, the, organize, the organization. Look at any of us when we are just newly born. Why are we mortal at this moment? We have not sinned. Oh, but we have sinned in Adam, says this same theory. Did we sin in the individual sense? How could we sin individually when we did not exist? Paul says no. He says death reigned over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression. Why is it we are mortal then? In that sense, in what sense is the sentence of Adam upon us when we are born? Well, we are Adam's organization. It is in the organization that the law of mortality resides. It is in the physical substance that the principle of death is at work. Hence the phrase, this corruptible, if the substance were not corruptible, life, if the, if the substance were not corruptible, life would be ours forever. And he goes on with more, but this illustrates the fact that he, di he diverges very sharply from this new theory which is propounded. I would like now to read another brief comment to you. If my filing system doesn't break down, I got these pamphlets all laid out in order, I hope. Uh, this little pamphlet was written in England uh, in the early part of the 20th century by a man who was known as a Berean Christadelphian, and it's called Echoes of Past Controversies. We must acknowledge a certain amount of bias to it. He was endeavoring to uphold some of the principles that he felt was correct, and which he felt also that some of the teachings of Brother Andrew did not uphold, and the teachings of Brother uh, Roberts did. I take this pamphlet not because I want the opinion of the writer, but because he quotes from the Christadelphian of 1873 and defines the renunciationist controversy. And with that, I think we will have enough so that you can see what happened. Here was the basis of renunciationism, or what was also known as the free life theory. Quote, the renunciationist teaching is expressed in the following proposition. See the Christadelphian for 1873 double quote. In other words, this is a quote within a quote. That the body of Jesus did not inherit the curse of Adam, though derived from it, though derived from him through Mary, and therefore was not mortal. That his natural life was free. That in his free natural life he earned eternal life and might, if he had so chosen, have avoided death or even refused to have died upon the cross and entered into eternal life alone. His death being the act of his own free will and not in any sense necessary for his own salvation, that his sacrifice consisted in the offering up of an unforfeited life in payment of the penalty incurred by Adam and his posterity, which was eternal death, and that his unforfeited life was, was slain in the room instead of the forfeited lives of all believers of the race of Adam. The next paragraph is his opinion, and I don't quote it. Uh, it's, this is well stated, and I think stated in the language of the time and of the people who were engaged in the controversy. So you can see a challenge arose over a subject which was very complex. Imagine the consternation of very humble believers in the gospel who thrilled to the promises made to Abraham, who had a basic understanding of the condemnation which had come upon the race, and who desired only to uh, faithfully and humbly carry out their probationary period and, and work for glory, honor, immortality, and, and a part in the kingdom of God. Imagine the consternation of these people to be stirred and upset by controversy between prominent brethren in the Christadelphian Brotherhood. Well, it's not a pleasant picture. But again, reverting back to the statements we made before, the Christadelphians do not have anybody that tells them what they're supposed to believe. And Mr. Turney merely put out a pamphlet and said, this is what I think we ought to believe instead of what we are believing. And in return, some of the brethren who felt that what we believed at that time was already correct upheld it and explained why they thought Mr. Turney was wrong. But the decision, and this is important, the decision of what would constitute truth to the Christadelphians from this point forward rested with what the majority of Christadelphians conceived to be the truth 
in this matter of controversy. How was it resolved? Well, it was resolved by more or less common consent in that Christadelphians drew together in support of what Brother Andrew and Brother Roberts were trying to, to defend. And by contrast, the works of Brother Turney have been almost lost to us. I understand there was a small remnant of people in Birmingham, and maybe to this day, who still hold to some of his teachings. They do not call themselves Christadelphians, I believe, but uh, and they're very, very small if they still exist. So, in other words, his views were rejected. They were not considered to be logical. The principles were set forth in debate form, and the decision was made to reject this criticism of the teachings of Dr. Thomas and Brother Roberts and Brother Andrews, to reject the teachings of Brother Turney in, in, in opposition to the teachings of Brother Roberts and Brother Andrews. Well, you would say, now what does this have to do with us today? I would emphasize it, it was of momentous consequences because other controversies were to follow, and we're going to talk about a few of them very quickly. And the strange thing is that most of these rested on the same points which were argued over and debated over in this free life controversy. And they're still with us today. However, and this is a point I think needs to be emphasized with great strength, it was about this time, let's say a little after this controversy had been resolved, that Christadelphians came to the conclusion that we need some short method of identifying what we believe so that when something comes up like what Edward Turney has proposed, it'll stand in sharp contrast to what we believe. And so the idea of a Christadelphian statement of faith began to be explored. It was several years in evolving into its present form. Uh, by evolving, I mean it wasn't always evident at first just what things needed to be stated clearly to be defended against the opposition from without and also from within. But when it was finally set forth, as we have it today, it does a pretty good job of protecting us against some of these problems which have arisen in the past. Periodically, however, you will find some brother who will come along, and very rightfully so, and he'll say, our statement of faith, you know, it really isn't complete. And sometimes it's almost confusing. And we must acknowledge this is true. And the reason it's true is because it does not always objectively define scriptural truth, but rather it defines scriptural truth in contrast with errors which it was being assailed by when it was created. And this statement of faith was put into its present form very nearly as a direct result of the renunciationist controversy in 1873 and thereabouts. I would like to call your attention to the fact that some of the most important propositions in our statement of faith today were set in almost the, the, the form we have them today as a result of this controversy. And if you'll bear in mind what it was, that there was a challenge being made. First of all, that men were guilty of Adam's sin and therefore under the sentence of death because they were guilty of Adam's sin. This was number one error which was introduced. Number two, that Jesus was not guilty of Adam's sin. He was not under the condemnation of death. He had a free life, and he offered it in payment or in ransom for those people who were locked under the common death, which the Adamic sentence required. Now, this was the error. Now, mark the way in which the statement of faith is written to include these very thoughts, but to state them as the Scripture would require them to be stated. I'll start with Proposition 5 that Adam broke this law. It's familiar to you. I'm sure you've all read it. The Edenic law, the law which says, In the day thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. That Adam broke this law and was sentenced to return to the ground from whence he was taken. A sentence which in effect defiled and became a physical law of his being and was transmitted to all his posterity. Uh, it's well to recall the word in effect has been added. This was added by the Chicago Ecclesia of our fellowship. Both, uh, most Christadelphians today recognize that this is a clarification, and it does not 
uh, affect the basic meaning which was originally intended there. It's not intended to affect the basic meaning. The important feature to recognize in this statement is, and it's overlooked by many people even in our day, that the sentence which in effect defiled became a physical law of Adam's being and was transmitted to all his posterity. And some have stumbled over what appears to be an ambiguity of meaning there, that the effect of the sentence was transmitted to all Adam's posterity. But if you'll read it carefully, it does not say that. The English is well written and it's precise. It says the sentence itself, which resulted in a physical law in his being, which we call mortality, the sentence itself was transmitted to all his posterity. We're all born under the sentence of death. We're born out of Eden, uh, alienated from God, and separated from him because of this sentence of condemnation which rests upon us. And the outworking of that sentence is death for all of us. All right, then going on and describing the redemptive work of Christ in connection with this, the statement of faith says, all again in the light of this controversy which arose, that God in his kindness conceived a plan of restoration, which, without setting aside his just and necessary law of sin and death, should ultimately rescue the obedience of the race from destruction and people the earth with sinless immortals. Going on to number seven, that he inaugurated this plan by making promises to, Ab to Adam, Abram, and David, which were afterward elaborated in greater detail through the promises, through the prophets. In number eight, that these promises had reference to Jesus Christ, and mark this, this, this was the exact inspiration which sprang out of this controversy and which clarified the issue so that it should not affect us at a future date. That these promises had reference to Jesus Christ who was raised up of the condemned race of Adam in the line of Abram and David, and who, though wearing the condemned nature, no free life here, no separate entity outside of the condemnation in Adam, but who, though wearing the condemned nature, was to obtain title to resurrection by perfect obedience, and by dying, abrogate the law of condemnation. Abrogate means to set aside or to do away with. To abrogate the law of condemnation for himself and all who should believe and obey him. The law had to be, the law of condemnation had to be done away with first. The sentence had to be set aside first in order that ultimately the mortality uh, effect of the sentence could be negated by resurrection to the judgment seat of Christ and final exaltation to the immortal nature at the judgment seat. Finally, number nine, that it was this mission that necessitated the miraculous begettal of Christ of a virgin descendant of Adam, enabling him to bear our condemnation and at the same time to be a sinless bearer thereof. And therefore, one who could rise after the suffering of death required by the righteousness of God. And thus he destroyed in his own mortal nature that having the power of death, which is the devil, and will finally destroy the devil or sin in the flesh in all its forms of manifestation. Number 10, finally, that being so begotten of God and inhabited and used by God through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, Jesus was Emmanuel, God with us, God manifest in the flesh, yet was during his natural life of like nature with mortal man being made of a woman of the house and lineage of David, and therefore a sufferer in the days of his flesh from all of the effects that came by Adam's transgression, including the death that passed upon all men which he shared by partaking of their physical nature. Christadelphians today acknowledge this as fundamental doctrine, but in 1873 it was challenged. And Christadelphians could have lost that doctrine had not brethren read and studied and weighed and decided in their minds that the new departure was indeed that and was not an, a further elaboration of truth. Mr. Turney did not give a further and better elaboration of truth, but in fact denied vital principles of truth. And the Brotherhood responded in very uh, strong fashion to the fact that a statement of the principles upon which we stand was essential. And these propositions as part of our statement of faith were the outgrowth of that controversy. <clears throat>
It isn't pleasant, as I say, to think that these things have to happen. But I suppose it isn't pleasant in this bicentennial year to think about the fact that Englishmen was fighting Englishmen in the days of the American Revolution, either. But had they not done so, there would be no America as we know it today. You know, United States of America as we know it today. It's not pleasant to think about the fact that the colonists, though very much extolled in this day and age, uh, were very unkind to the loyalists who still wanted to retain the king ruling over them. And so it isn't very pleasant to think about the fact that during this controversy there were some who upheld Edward Turney and that there were those amongst the Christadelphians who said, even as Dr. Thomas had said to the Campbellites, you are erring. You should not accept Baptists into the congregation of the, or other religions into the congregation of the Campbellites until they have been baptized, believing the doctrines as we understand them. And so the followers of Edward Turney were turned aside from even as the principles of fellowship require. And they were told, until you can recognize the mistake, the mistaken belief, we cannot have you perpetuating these beliefs amongst those who call themselves Christadelphian. And a number of principles then were laid down for brethren to follow, and most of them were very soundly based on Scripture. This was one of the examples of a very important milestone in the doctrinal history of the Christadelphians. Not pleasant to think about, but even less pleasant, pleasant would be the contemplation of what would have happened to the Christadelphians if nobody had taken any notice of these divergent views which were offered. And first thing we would have known, Christadelphians would have been believing all kinds of things, there would have been no un un unity of thinking, and we would have found ourselves probably no better than the rest of the churches by today with all kinds of beliefs being held in our midst. Uh, in short, I think the truth would have been lost, even as it was in the period after the first century Ecclesiastes. All right, this lays the foundation for something else which came about. <clears throat> the next episode in the doctoral history of the Ecclesias of the Christadelphians was, of course, the production of the Statement of Faith. One edition in 1877 is pretty much as we have it today, so you see it took a while to mature into that form and to be spread about the world. Then in 1885, a rather strange controversy arose, one which seems totally illogical. You wonder how it ever came about. A man arose who had formerly been uh, a minister of the gospel in one of the established churches, but who gave that up to become a Christadelphian. He was a very able speaker and a very, uh, very likable person, we're told. And he began to propound the idea that there just couldn't be all of the scripture inspired of the Lord. That, for example, in, in the book of Esther, the word of God doesn't even occur. What makes you think that's inspired? Now, Dr. Thomas had pretty well taken the, the premise upon which he based his reasoning that all scripture is given of inspiration of God, and the New Testament writings in Hebrew says that. And he took this as his premise. In other words, all of his reasoning is pointless if the scripture is not inspired word of God. And he accepted this. This man challenged that, and he says there's obviously some things that aren't inspired, or they seemed obvious to him. Well, this produced another controversy and a separation of brethren, a much larger one, incidentally, than took place in this uh, situation with Edward Turney. The outcome of this was a change in the statement of faith. I should perhaps be more correct if I said an addition to it. The last proposition in our statement of faith, and uh, some of the statements carried at the head of it, is number 31 in ours, and it states, which was the outgrowth of that controversy, that the scriptures composing the book currently known as the Bible are the only source now extant of knowledge concerning God and his purposes, and that they were given wholly by the unerring inspiration of God in the writers, and that such errors as have crept in are due to transcription or translation. And quotations are adduced, of course, to prove all of these propositions in our statement of faith. This is a very important proposition and was originally intended to be put at the start of it, because, after all, that's the basis upon which we work. We shall not devote any more time than this brief mention to this controversy. Sufficient to state it was called the Partial Inspiration Controversy, and it existed down until the, the mid-century, uh, when uh, it turned out that those who had followed the so-called Partial Inspiration idea were found, upon examination, to have reverted back to Christadelphian principles. 
and were very willing to accept this proposition as part of their statement of faith, and a reunion was effected. And they are today part of the Central Fellowship in Britain. Uh, it never affected this country particularly. Now I'd like to bring your attention to a further part of the doctrinal history of the, of the uh, Christadelphians, and one which I think affects us very much today. Over the past few years, we've had a lot of discussion in our midst about the necessity for reunion. Most of, most of us are aware that Christadelphians exist under two classifications. For our naming, we call ourselves unamended and call the other group the amended. What does all of this mean? How did it all happen? What is it all about? It's a rather complex thing to explain, but I would like to do so because I feel that we need to know this. How can you know whether reunion is desirable if you don't know what you're going to be reunited with? And I think one of the, the most unfortunate things is that many of the brethren even engaged in reunion, when the question of the history of how the division took place is raised, they will reject it and say, let's don't quote past Arthur's, let's don't look into history, let's take our Bibles and sit down and reason together. Well, as I started out in this discussion, it's still my very strong conviction that those who fail to take the lessons of history seriously are doomed to repeat them. And I believe that brethren who attempt to uh, seek for reunion without recognizing the history of how we got divided are, are just asking for trouble. Uh, my voice doesn't always get heard on my beliefs on that, but these are my convictions. Uh, let's consider how it all came about. You will recall that I asked you to remember that in this book, Jesus Christ and Him Crucified, now called the real Christ, that Brother Andrew held the belief, and here is the proposition, that resurrection affects those only who are responsible to God by a knowledge of his revealed will. In 1871 and in 1873, Brother Andrew very vigorously upheld the principle that Dr. Thomas had set forth and Brother Roberts upheld till the day of his death, that if you heard the gospel and understood it and realized that you were called upon to accept it in order to be pleasing to God, that if you rejected it, you committed a sin for which you could be raised and punished at the judgment seat of Christ. I'd like to call attention to one prominent scripture upon which this principle was based. And it is, it is perhaps the main scripture, the full uh, time needed to determine the scriptural backing of this question is not available to us since we're engaged in a study of the history and not of the details of the doctrine. But I'd call your attention to the 12th chapter of John. Verses 47 and 48. Perhaps we should uh, say verse, verses 46 through 48. Let me read them to you. Jesus speaking to his people, the Jews, and he says, I am come a light into the world, that whosoever believeth on me should not abide in darkness. If any man hear my words and believe not, I judge him not. For I came not to judge the world, but to save the world. He that rejecteth me, and receiveth not my words, hath one that judgeth him. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. Right at this point, I would like to digress for a moment to make a little observation of a philosophical nature, more particularly a, 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 an observation of a logical nature. And that is that when someone proposes an idea with respect to the scripture and you're called upon to decide whether this is a good idea or a bad idea, you can very neatly use as your first test of this the type of reasoning that the person uses to, to present his idea with. Now, it isn't always easy to determine this. Some people write so complex, there's so much to be considered, that it isn't always easy to get to the meat of the thing and find out what it's all about. But watch for two things when you read anything about the Bible, anything involving the truth literature. If someone comes up with an idea and presents it and then says, now these scriptures seem to prove that, and this scripture seems to prove that, and this one seems to prove that, you want to watch out for it. Because this is not using the, the time honored method of the scripture reasoning 
in which you let the Bible define itself. When people talk about the immortality of the soul and you say, well, what is a soul? They will give you a definition which their theory agrees with. But you say, I won't take your definition. I say, what is a soul? And you read from your Bible what a soul is and that souls die and that uh, they, can be, they can be punished and, and things like this. And you find that doesn't agree with the theory. So much the worse for the theory for some people. But if we will take the scripture and let the scripture define itself, we're very apt to come up with truth. Another thing you want to watch for when an idea is presented to you, and this is akin to the first idea, if you have a scripture which is not too clear, if you can get a scripture which will clarify it, you are on very safe ground. But if you have to assign a definition to words in that scripture and you arbitrarily assign the definition to it, you haven't got anything any more certain than your own thinking on the question. And here in this verse, we have an interesting example of that. The, the Savior says, He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my words hath one that judgeth him. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. What was that last day? There are those who assert that it's the last day when Jesus shall return and shall set up his judgment seat on earth and judge those who reject the Savior. And they say this implies that resurrection will be necessary to raise these rejectors and bring them before that judgment seat at the last day in order to punish them. But you see, it hangs on that phrase, last day. Even Dr. Thomas acknowledged that there is another last day, and one much more commonly used by the New Testament writers. And that was the time which Jesus foresaw in the 21st chapter of Luke, when the nation of Israel would be punished and turned out of their inheritance for their rejection of their Messiah. This happened in 70 A.D. when the Romans came against Jerusalem and destroyed it. Uh, was this what Jesus was talking about, that the Jews who rejected him would be punished in the day when God was going to turn them out of their inheritance? Or was he making a broader statement and saying that everybody who rejects me all down through the ages to the Gentile times will be punished, implying resurrection, in the last day when I come to judge the saints in the household? Well, that hadn't been a controversy, but there were many who had had devious ideas on the subject, including Dr. Thomas himself. He never doubted the idea that those who rejected the gospel would be punished. But he certainly did uh, doubt the idea that it was invariable that the last days referred to the judgment seat of Christ. In fact, he himself thought it referred to the times for uh, the punishment of Israel and the dispersion from their kingdom. So around this verse, and stemming from this controversy we've been discussing this morning, this renunciation of controversy, will come a whole new controversy known as the responsibility controversy. <clears throat> what is the responsibility that a person has after he has learned or been enlightened in the gospel? Now, you see the stage set for what we're going to talk about tomorrow. Our time has evaporated today, and so we will try to bring this thing to a conclusion by showing you not only how the responsibility question came into being, but some of the complicating factors which have clothed it in the course of its existence over three quarters of a century. So thank you very much. Let's call that for today.